It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. Um, this show has been, I want, to, I want um, to inform our audience that the show has been in the making actually for several months, but I do think it's uh, quite timely considering the news of the day. We're here to talk about the enhancements to whistleblower protections for the federal workforce. And the guests that we've lined up for today's show, I think you can't find anyone better to talk about this particular area of the law. So let me start with Cynthia Lee, who is the deputy counsel at the Office of Inspector General for the Department of Homeland Security. And she's been in that job, or she's been over at the OIG since 2015. And um, I want to welcome you, Cynthia, to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And um, so she's an attorney. She holds the position of deputy counsel over there at OIG for Department of Homeland Security. And in her previous um, previous life, before she joined um, DHS OIG, she had um, quite a long stint as an AUSA. Um, so she brings to the table, I think, some really good information and insight and perspective to the issues that we're going to be talking about. We also have from Department of Justice OIG, we have Robert Storch, who's the Deputy Inspector General. Good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Um, and Rob has been at DOJ's OIG since July of 2012. So the two of you have been there for a sufficient amount of time. You got your feet wet and, um, and um, sort of know what's going on. Um, and both of them are here to talk about not just the programs, the whistleblower programs at the OIG, but in particular, the Ombudsman program, which was part of the Enhancement Act in 2012. You can't talk about whistleblower, uh, federal employee whistleblower protections without having someone from the Office of Special Counsel. And we are very fortunate to have with us today Darshan Sheth who is um, one of the supervising attorneys at OSC in the Investigations and Prosecution Division at OSC, where he's been since 2001. I know Darshan personally from work I've done, um, and I think he's um, really great at articulating and advocating the work that the Office of Special Counsel does in this area, and I want to welcome you to the show, Darshan. I think it's your, I think it's your maiden voyage. It is. Thank you for having me. Um, so... For, for our listeners, um, I want to highlight in advance what, you know, the topics that we're going to talk today on the show. Darshan's going to give us an overview. You know, if, if you've been in this field for as long as I have, the Whistleblower Protection Act is from 1989. Um, when I started practicing law, that was recent. Now it's not. Um, there have been some enhancements. And then what we're going to do is we're going to start diving into some of those enhancements, including the Ombudsman Program. Some of the add-ons that occurred in the intelligence community, and um, and then we're going to talk about some protections for federal contractors. So we have a really full show, and I'd like to start with Darshan and talk about um, what we call in our in our world, our lawyer world for whistleblower protection, we call the add-ons, the enhancements. Can you give our listeners a good overview? Sure. Uh, Deborah, first, let me just thank you for having uh, OSC on the show. It's a great opportunity for us to speak to the broad audience that your show reaches. Um, so I'm thrilled to be here. Um, so there are probably about 15 or so major changes in the Whistleblower Protection and Enhancement Act that was uh, signed in late 2012. Uh, of those, I'm going to talk about a few. It's hard to believe we're like coming up on almost five years. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, and I know later in the show we're going to talk mm -hmm. about some of the provisions that are going away. Yeah, potentially. Um, potentially. Uh, yeah, it's been five years, and so we have some experience with this new law. Um, OSC was a, a big backer of it, and there are some things that directly affect our work uh, that, I'll, that I'll share with your audience. Yeah. Um, 
First is that we now have amicus curiae authority. Amicus curiae, for those of you who don't know, is a friend of the court brief that we can file with uh, the MSPB, different federal appellate courts, or the Supreme Court uh, to uh, expound on whistleblower issues, to, to, to share our view on major issues in whistleblower cases. Before uh, this legislation, we were sort of shut out of the process, and we didn't have a voice in many of the cases that go up that do not involve OSC. Uh, but now we have an opportunity to share with the um, court our administrative court, our views on uh, important whistleblower issues, and we have done that. We have exercised our authority quite vigorously. I believe we filed 11 uh, briefs over the course of the last three years, uh, including one in the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And, and McLean. Uh, Robert McLean case. And you made a difference. Yeah, it was a big was, thrill for our folks to yeah, work no, on was, something of that magnitude. Was, I watched it with uh, enthusiasm, I must say. Yeah, so that's one of the big provisions, and we have a working group in-house that uh, scours the uh, administrative decisions and so on to find uh, cases where we might opine in a meaningful way. So that's the one, uh, that's one of the bigger provisions. Um, another one is the idea of compensatory damages. Now, compensatory damages have been available in the EEO field forever. Not uh, forever, only since 91. Since 91, okay. Which is not forever. It's yeah. all, it feels like it could be. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're new in our realm. Uh, 2012, <laughs> end of 2012 is well, when. Well, you had, um, before you had compensatory damages, you had... Um, Consequential damages. Consequential, yeah. And, of course, there's you know, attorney's fees and so on. But uh, in compensatory damages, as you well know, is pain and suffering, some of the uh, uh, physical and psychological symptoms you might suffer yeah. as a result of poor treatment. And uh, you can imagine there's an analog in the uh, EEOC world where you have uh, harassment cases. We have retaliation cases where folks are subjected to the most severe forms of harassment Uh in and reprisal for whistleblowing. In reprisal for whistleblowing, mm-hmm. absolutely. And so, uh, you know, we reserve compensatory damages for the most severe cases. Um, we uh, do scrutinize the requests that come in. And so, I mean, the severity of the personnel action, the severity of the treatment, um, the way management might have reacted to a set of uh, disclosures or, or contacts with the IG are things that we would look at. And then, of course, we would look for supporting evidence. We're going to need to see some potential medical records, maybe uh, obtain some affidavits from people that you associate with to tell us uh, how you've been affected by the whistleblowing or by the uh, retaliation. Yeah. No, it's a nice, it's, um, it's about, you know, giving is, you know, restoring an employee who's been unlawfully treated in the title seven realm, it's unlawful discrimination and or reprisal for engaging in the EEO process. You get your compensatory damages and you know, that part was missing in the Title V analog, which is whistleblower reprisal cases. That's right. And, um, and there was relief for those employees in the Title V process. But it's nice to see um, that the idea in Title VII is that make whole. And you're getting closer, I think. The law is getting closer in the Title V arena. Yeah, the make whole idea. Absolutely. And we've seen, you know, some very severe cases where we've been frustrated pre-WPEA that we could not obtain compensation for folks for yeah. some real injuries that they suffered um, which is not to say that uh, we would obtain compensatory damages in the vast majority of our cases. We do not. Um, there have been a couple of dozen, I would say, uh, since the law uh, went into place, and many of them on the smaller side. We have had a few recoveries, uh, a few comp damage uh, awards of, I wouldn't say awards, but, you know, in the $100,000 type range. Uh, but those were for the most severe cases. Mm-hmm. And we don't know. That, what... that, that um, matches how the EEOC awards comp damages in Title Seven. You know, to get into a six-figure award, the um, the behavior at, directed at you and the harm, the damage to the person has to be pretty severe. Absolutely. And so we've used the EO yeah. uh, C process and, and, and their guidance yeah. to sort of guide us uh, as we kind of go into this. Yeah, they've uh, had 20 years to sort of figure it out. They sure have. They have a cap, uh, $300,000, which we do not, but we have not test, have had occasion to test that yet. Um, and I'm not sure that we will in the near future. But uh, so so along those lines, uh, another area that uh, was changed by the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act is uh, making retaliatory investigations a compensable uh, thing. So a retaliatory investigation by itself will not be compensable. But if it leads to a personnel action, then we can go back and look at some of the injuries that were suffered during the investigation investigation phase. And I think this was really important because it put agencies on notice that Investigations are to, investigative resources are to be used for legitimate investigations, not for as tools for retaliation. Um, and I think investigators would agree that that's uh, a good way to go. Uh, sometimes investigations are unwittingly yeah. prompted yeah. by folks with retaliatory motive. Yeah, we're going to hear from our friends from the IG soon about that, aren't we? I'm, I'm excited to hear what they have to say. Um, but you know, with retaliatory investigations, I mean, the agency shouldn't waste taxpayer money uh, to harass their employees. Um, so. 
you know, we look to uh, investigations to see what prompted them, what set of facts, who prompted them, why they uh, might have reported somebody, and kind of go from there. So that's that's uh, along the lines of sort of compensating folks. Uh, retaliatory investigations are now something that is part of the equation. Um, in addition, uh, something that's very important for OSC is that our disciplinary action authorities have been changed somewhat. So there is now a uh, lower legal burden. Before we had to show that but for the whistleblowing, the bad thing would not have happened. Um, now uh, we have to just show by preponderance of the evidence that uh, the whistleblower retaliation, excuse me, the whistleblowing or the protected activity was a significant motivating factor. And then, of course, the agency can rebut, excuse me, the subject can rebut yeah. that. But significant motivating factors. Is a lot different than but for. That's right. And so, you know, it's okay if other factors played a role. Right, right. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little easier. Yeah. Now, I, what, I do want to continue on with you, Darshan, on some of the other enhancements, because I know there are more, and they're important to go through, because when we get to the end of the show, we're going to talk about which ones might be sunsetting, because they, we're coming up on the five-year enactment of the statute, but we need to take our first commercial break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. Today's show um, is a show about whistleblower protection rights in the for the federal workforce, and in particular, some recent enhancements that have been made to federal employee protections in the last five years or so. Joining us in the studio to talk about that, we have three. I have three guests. I have Cynthia Lee, who's the deputy counsel at DHS OIG's. Um, shop, and I have Rob Storch, who is the deputy IG at Justice. But we were talking with um, Darshan Sheth at uh, Office of Special Counsel. He's an attorney there, uh, works in their investigations and, and prosecution division, and he was going over for us um, a rundown on the enhancements the that um, made it into what what we in the field call the WPEA. And um, we left off with you, Darshan. So we're going to pick up back again with your go through finishing up the list. Sure. Uh, so before we went to break, I was talking a little bit about OSC's disciplinary action authority and how it was affected by the WPEA. And I'd mentioned the legal standard and the change in that. The other significant uh, provision that was changed is now OSC is no longer responsible for paying attorney's fees if we lose a case. Uh, that is something that the employing agency has to pay. And that was a big deal for an agency like OSC with 130 employees and a very small operating budget to absorb a hit of uh, a large attorney's fees award. Uh, so now it's up to the agency where the, uh, the wrongdoing occurred. And we think that it's also an incentive for agencies to pay attention when OSC comes to you with a recommendation. Because if you don't pay heed to it, there might be a financial consequence, a significant financial consequence for the agency down the road. Yeah. And regardless, it's the state of the law. Right. Exactly. It's absolutely the state of the law. Um, there were some other little changes where penalties no longer are limited to one particular action. Uh, a whole host of and combination of uh, actions, disciplinary actions, can be taken against an employee if that's appropriate in a case. So those are some of the things that were changed uh, from a disciplinary action standpoint uh, with the law. And um, one of the one of the um, provisions in the WPEA um, deals with creating an ombudsman program. Um, in um, in the community for uh, for whistleblowers, which is the reason why we have with us Cynthia and Rob, and um, and the WPEA creates the requirement right that ombudsman programs um, get up and running. And I'm going to leave it to Rob and Cynthia to jointly tell us, you know, what is what is this legal requirement, and then in each of your particular departments, how are you implementing that? Sure. Happy, happy to kick off. So um, OSC obviously has a critical role in uh, dealing with uh, whistleblowers throughout the executive brands. Um, and uh, in the OIG community, we're, we work very closely uh, with OSC on those. And we have a uh, ourselves a significant and growing role with that. I mean, just to take a step back, the OIGs exist within federal agencies 
to detect and deter waste, fraud, abuse, and corruption. Uh, and uh, that's a job we can't do without whistleblowers coming forward with information. Uh, by way of just an example at the Department of Justice, I think we have currently about 115,000 employees throughout the uh, country. We have about 450, 460-odd employees in the OIG. There's no way we can know about everything that's sure. going on throughout the agency without whistleblowers coming forward. That's actually recognized specifically in the Inspector General Act. Uh, going back to when the whole IG system was created, there's a section, section seven, that talks about the ability of IGs to receive information from employees, that IGs will protect the confidentiality of whistleblowers who come forward unless uh, it becomes inevitable that their uh, identity would be disclosed. And also specifically says that employees who come forward to the IG shall not suffer reprisals. So you have the Title V protections, but also right there in the IG Act, it recognizes the importance of that. When, in 2012, when they uh, when Congress passed the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act, one of the things they did was they set up a program for IGs requiring that all the presidentially appointed IGs and many of the others have done it as well, uh, create whistleblower ombudsperson programs. And those exist to educate agency employees uh, regarding the prohibitions against reprisal for making uh, disclosures and also to provide information to people who have made or who are contemplating making protected disclosures regarding their rights and protections for doing that. So different agencies have interpreted that and uh, carried out different ways depending upon the nature of their organizations. But it really is a uh, something that goes right to the core function of IGs. Uh, we take people coming forward uh, to our office as a critical uh, source of information. Uh, people who do that perform a public service when they come forward with that information. They never should suffer reprisal. It's something that throughout the IG community we take very seriously. We've created a working group of the ombuds uh, from throughout the uh, community, and we meet uh, quarterly to discuss uh, best practices and, and ways to improve our operations. Yeah, and one of the other things, am I, am I wrong? Because on both of your websites, on um, DHSOIG website and DOJOIG website, um, you list sort of the three main core functions of the ombudsman program. And the other, um, so the first is educating about the prohibitions against reprisal, um, having a process in place to review um, um, you know, disclosures by whistleblowers. And the third one is coordinating with OSC. Um, and both of both organizations over at um, DOJ and DHS, you say that, that, you know, you have this coordination function. So, Cynthia, can you tell us about that? Because um, like 25, 30 years ago, um, you know, when government was smaller and had less on its plate, the IG community for sure was more involved initially in protecting whistleblowers and doing something about it. And then over time, what I noticed in my own practice or sort of hearing it anecdotally was that um, the reprisal complaints and dealing with reprisal, the IG community took the position that that was OSC's function. And it seems like now with the ombudsman programs, we've sort of reached some middle ground that makes a lot of sense to me, this coordination element. Can you talk to that? Sure. Because a lot of people... Um, don't understand those relationships between the two entities. Yes, we, in the past couple of years at DHS, have grown our program to um, really build out uh, protecting those who uh, believe that they have been reprised against for making protected disclosures. We do have an ombudsman in place, but our IG, about a year ago, uh, John Roth, decided that... No relationship to me. None. Cynthia and I always have to say that out loud. <laughs> I right. am not related to him. He decided to stand up a whistleblower protection unit. So the ombuds is in that unit, but we also have a unit of investigators who are dedicated solely to working with those who believe that they have been reprised against for making protected disclosures. Uh, they do all the intake. They uh, open investigations. They conduct investigations. They also supplement the educating that the ombudsman does because, as you know, Homeland Security is a large agency. We have 
240,000 employees. So obviously one person is not enough. So if people have questions about whistleblower reprising, they can call uh, call over to us and talk to anybody from the Whistleblower Protection Unit who can give them information on how to file a claim and what their rights and remedies may be. Uh, we have three areas that we are statutorily uh, or by directive are required to take if there is a prima facie showing of whistleblower reprisal. So we're going to talk about two of them later, being the presidential uh, policy directive uh, 19, which has to do with security clearances in the intelligence community. Uh, The second one is contractors, grantees. The third one is the military whistleblower uh, protection for our Coast Guard so we are mandated to take those if and investigate if there's a prima facie showing of reprisal. Of reprisal. Correct. So in the general whistleblower protection arena, we also look at those cases. Those cases are discretionary, but that's where we coordinate heavily with OSC. OSC obviously has um, you know, much more uh, resources to bear in that area. They also have powers that we don't as the inspector yeah. general. But I think they- Darshan would um, say that the resources <laughs> that he has more of is the power. He has, he has statutory power, um, not he personally, but the Office of Special Counsel that the IG community doesn't, just doesn't have. And so I think that coordination, because you have the power to, inve- you know, you have investigative resource power that, and, and, and resources that they just don't have. I think it's an interesting, um, you know, a joint use of, like, it's force multipliers, right? Correct. It is. So, you know, only the inspector generals can handle the security clearance aspects of whistleblowing reprisal. So they'll communicate with us if they had a, a regular whistleblower protection act case that then had an added element of uh, a personnel action of revoking someone's security, security clearance. clearance. So we try to work together to be a force multiplier, as you say. Yeah. And, and if I can, yeah. I mean, that, that coordination um, s- extends to the underlying allegations as well, right? Because as inspector generals, we the deal disclosure with... disclosure part. Correct. We get disclosures all the time of waste, fraud, abuse, corruption. Uh, we may be very interested in that. And then the uh, individuals disclosing may also feel that they've suffered some sort of reprisal for reporting that within their organization or whatever it is. And it may be a situation that we have uh, jurisdiction and are very interested in, in looking into the underlying disclosure, but the reprisal allegation is something that might be better handled at OSC. So in that situation, we would inform the whistleblower of that, and then we would coordinate with OSC. And then additionally, as Cynthia points out, the role of OIGs in uh, exploring actual reprisal has grown and continues to grow mm-hmm. with things like PPD-19, dealing with access to classified information and the intelligence community with the statute related to contractors, subcontractors, and grantees and subgrantees. Yeah, now. we're going to get to that we'll later on in the show in so a lot of detail because it's good stuff. Yeah, so we continue to grow in that area as well, and all of that requires uh, coordination. So we work very closely to make sure that we're all pursuing what we need to be pursuing and not doing it at cross purposes. Yeah, and... Um, Cynthia, getting back to your particular program where you actually have a unit to investigate allegations of reprisal, um, you know, congratulations and kudos because I watched the federal workforce sort of suffer um, of getting like ping ponged, getting bounced back and forth um, for a long time. You know, they would make a disclosure and as as we've all said, it is unlawful to retaliate. And I would have people call me or clients say to me, you know, but it's they can't do that to me. It's unlawful. And I'd be like, well, I know what the law is, but that's different than human nature. And and human nature, unfortunately, in the federal workforce is becoming more of a culture of um, of unfortunately um, of retaliating. And there was like, and they'd go to OSC for the retaliation and there would be this lack of coordination and a ping ponging effect. So kudos and congratulations that there's a home inside the IG. Cause I actually think that having a home inside the IG office for complaints of reprisal, cause you disclosed to the IG, I think is that would become the number one deterrent to reprisal. Um, because everyone knows in the community how small OSC is, how long it takes, and that you can kind of escape the hand of justice that way. So I think that's a great a great program and an add-on. So when they find, if they were to find reprisal in your unit, what's the coordination with OSC on that? 
Well, if it's just a, a PPD-19 contractor or military whistleblower protection act, we can handle that in-house. Sure. We have our own investigators. But for regular federal workers for regular federal workers, blow the whistle and then come in and claim reprisal. We will reach out to OSC right away and we will be in a dialogue. They Sometimes they can tell us more or less depending on the confidentiality that o- the person who's gone to OSC has has asked for, and Darshan can talk about more about that. But if they can share more, if they can share everything, then we are definitely step-by-step working and coordinating. Yeah, and having that coordination at your level, at the government official responsibility level, I think is so much more advantageous to the to the point of having these programs than having the employee, him or herself, sort of figure out how to navigate what can be a complex process process and legal process. Um, and so I, I think that this is, um, you know, I, uh, for our listeners, I met Cynthia when we did a program together, I think back in maybe March or April. And I remember hearing about that and thinking, well, that that's, that is, you know, been long needed in the community. And, um, and I wonder after so many years, what the anecdotal successes will look like for everybody. And if I can just add, Deborah, in thinking of the working group, because we do have ombuds from throughout the executive branch, I think all the agencies have systems for people to file complaints. And one of the things that it's important for the listeners to understand is that the ombuds who are typically identified on the websites and that are informational resources yeah. for uh, rights and protections. But if people ha- wish to make disclosures of information, whether it's the underlying disclosure or that they've suffered reprisal for having made disclosures within their organizations, that typically their procedures set forth to go to a hotline or other places. And that's typically on the websites. There's information about how to do that. Um, the ombuds perform an important but a somewhat different function yeah. um, than that. But I think throughout the community, there are uh, places where people can go in each of the executive branches to disclose either under what they believe to be underlying wrongdoing or reprisal for having made disclosures. Yeah, yeah. And that that's well known, Rob, uh, in the community. Good. It's kind of well known how to blow, you know, how to blow the whistle. Yeah. Um, but having ombudsman um, sort of like a quarterback watching out for these whistleblowers, I think, is an important add-on feature. Sure. Um, and and we're sort of new in it. We're new in the program, and um, and I think Congress will be pretty interested to see how it's playing out, particularly in both of your your departments. Um, I do want to follow up with the two of you, um, Cynthia and Rob, more on the the um, prong one, which is educating um, people about rights, because I think. What better opportunity do we have to go through some of your basic rights? Um, But we need to take our mid-show break. And when we come back, we'll finish up with um, the Ombudsman programs. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal law enforcement officer, then you know to do your job, you tap inside sources. To have a voice on policy and legislation, you join FLIOA. And when you want federal law enforcement officer news and up-to-date federal court decisions, you read FedAgent.com. If you aren't reading FedAgent.com, subscribe today. It's free. Don't let this source pass you by. I'm John Adler, president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. Um, we are our topic today are whistleblower protections and enhancements. And joining me in the studio to do that are three of the probably top people in government to talk about that are from agencies. I think that are the top agencies in government for federal employees to hear from um, if they're contemplating being a whistleblower. And um, we have, of course, we have somebody from the Office of Special Counsel. We have Darshan Sheth, who's one of the attorneys over there in investigations and prosecution. We have Cynthia Lee, who's the deputy counsel at DHSOIG. And we have Robert Stork, who is Storch, who is I've been called worse. who's the deputy IG over at Justice IG. And so before the break, we talked about the ombudsman program. One of the primary 
features of the ombudsman program is the know your rights, right, to educate educate um, potential whistleblowers and managers who might be um, government officials who might be the subject of whistleblowing. And maybe you could just, the two of you, could just sort of um, highlight some of the more important rights and protections. I'll start. Uh, Absolutely. And then turn it over to Cynthia. It is a very important part, really a core function of the ombuds program. But more importantly, it's just important that employees throughout the government understand what their rights are when they come forward with information uh, and what the protections are that are available to them. So under the statute, all the IGs set up these ombuds programs. We all have information on our websites. Uh, You can go to oig.justice.gov if you want to see ours. We have a video with links to frequently asked questions um, that deal with the rights and protections that people have when they uh, come forward with information and their rights against reprisal for doing so. Um, A particularly important area that people frequently ask about is whether they can come forward anonymously or whether their confidentiality will be protected. Uh, The answers are sure. You can come forward anonymously. You don't have to identify yourself. It can make it more difficult to actually pursue the allegation because the investigative agency, whether it's OIG or I should say OSC, people can also, if they don't want to report to the agency, they can go to OSC. Whoever's looking into it, they can still look into it. And we have looked into things that that came with anonymous or started with anonymous tips. But having said that, it's more difficult not to be able to go back. If you're willing go back and talk to, to go back and talk to the person because yeah. you don't know who to talk to. If the person is willing to identify themselves, but they want to remain confidential, they should let the entity, whether it's the OIG or OSC or anyone else, know that they want to maintain confidentiality. And under the Inspector General Act, the IG. So there's that distinction, Rob, between being anonymous and being confidential. Like you're anonymous when you go in to and make your disclosure and you leave no footprint behind to the IG or OSC who you are and how to contact you. Confidential is I'll tell you IG who I am, but I don't want you telling when you start investigating, I don't want you telling anyone where you got this from. That's exactly right, Deborah. And in fact, what we will do when we receive a complaint is we will not notify the entity that the employing entity of that unless it's a situation where we're going to refer it back for them to look at. And even then, we will not do that unless we have the consent of the whistleblower that they agree. If they say, no, I don't want them to know about that, then we will never notify them of that. Now, under the Inspector General Act, what I was, what I was getting to is that there is a specific provision that requires IGs to protect the confidentiality of people who identify themselves uh, but don't want their information to be disclosed unless we have their consent or unless mm. it, the identity becomes unavoidable during the course of the investigation. And the example of that we give is sometimes things will eventually go off to litigation. And, and in the course of litigation, a court may require that disclosure uh, be made. But but as a general matter, we will make every effort to protect the confidentiality of a whistleblower who comes forward. Um, the more general protection, of course, is that whistleblowers are protected uh, under Title V from having a personnel action be taken against them Mm -hmm. as a result of them having come forward with information within one of the categories, whether it's violation of law, rule, or regulation, gross mismanagement, or the other categories that, that are in the statute. And if somebody comes forward with that information, then they are protected from an adverse personnel action. One thing that I think we'll talk about in a bit, but is really important for people to know and keep in mind is that protection does not trump other applicable laws regarding the information. So, um, for instance, if information is classified or privileged or something else, it can still be the subject of a disclosure. But before making that disclosure, the person who wants to make the disclosure needs to make sure that the OIG or OSC or whomever they're making the disclosure to understands the nature of the information so that appropriate measures can be put in place to ensure that a whistleblower doesn't inadvertently violate those other provisions. Yeah, no, and, and I'm glad we I'm glad we touched on that. Cynthia, do you, have, do you want to add? I agree with the uh, classified information. That's obviously a hot topic that we want people to uh, whistleblow if something involves classified information, but that person needs to disclose it lawfully. So they need to be upfront that this is classified information because if they call the hotline, that person may not be authorized to take classified information. We have or privileged information. Or privileged information. Mm-hmm. We but we have procedures in place and people who can uh, take that information. It's also some something to remember. I think when people seek an attorney to talk to, because if that attorney is not authorized to hear classified information, then that can be uh, an unlawful disclosure. 
Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about something that's sort of the sign of the times. And the the statute, the Whistleblower Protection Act, has always had that provision, right, Darshan, about, um, you know, it's not a protected disclosure if you're disclosing something. It's not protected, meaning you, the employee, will not be protected by the law um, from reprisal, you know, claims of reprisal, if you make a disclosure unlawfully, right? That is correct. And even in the uh, Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act with the uh, non-disclosure agreement, uh, uh, prohibited personnel practice, this Congress specifically wrote in that classified information, the laws, rules, regulations, everything that executive orders that uh, apply to, exec- to classified information are unaltered by that prohibited personnel practice. And so that, you know, putting folks on notice that uh, disclosures about classified information, ha- information has to be done in a in an appropriate manner, in a lawful manner, to yeah. the appropriate entities. And Cynthia was describing um, the process over at DHS if people want to make a disclosure um, of uh, waste, fraud, and abuse um, violations of law, but it involves classified or privileged information. Rob, you're a DOJ employee, and you guys cover um, Maine Justice, um, FBI, Marshal Service, DEA, um, ATF, the ATF, Federal Bureau of Prisons, Federal Bureau uh, of Prisons, bunch of others. So, for that audience, somebody has classified information or privileged information um, that they think is the basis of a disclosure of fraud, waste, abuse, violation of law. Um, what's the process over at DOJ for making that disclosure? Um, of that kind of information. Sure. So uh, like all IGs, we have a hotline um, and the information on how to contact the hotline is on our website. Um, And when somebody wants to make a disclosure, they can indicate that the disclosure that they wish to make uh, contains classified or may contain classified information. And then our folks will reach out to them and make sure that the disclosure is made in an appropriate setting and in a way that will uh, make sure that those laws aren't violated. Basically mirrors what's happening at DHS, right? Exactly. And I think that's honestly true across the, the community, but it's just important that people understand, first of all, that there are procedures in place, yep. but secondly, that you need to make sure that the people you're dealing with are aware of the nature of the information so those procedures can be invoked. Yeah. Now, both of you, Rob and Cynthia, you've mentioned PPD-19 several times, so I think it's a good opportunity now to inform our, our audience about it. PPD stands for, because, you know, we're inside the Beltway, so everything has to be like letters um, letters and numbers. PPD-19 is Presidential Policy Directive, Presidential Policy Directive 19. If you're listening, you can find it online. It was signed on October 10th, 2012. Rob, give us the, give us, give us the, um, the highlights of what this directive does. Sure. Basically, when the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act uh, was in its final stages, uh, one of the things they did was they carved out uh, the intelligence community and uh, issues related to access to classified information, typically adverse actions involving security clearances. Um, This is around the time I came from the U.S. Attorney's Office community to the IG community. And one of the things I learned is that one of the uh, sort of things that would happen sometimes is people wouldn't be fired for blowing the whistle. But what would happen is when somebody blew the whistle, there'd be a determination made that you no longer could have that security clearance anymore. And Jimmy something. If Tom Devine were Tom, if you're listening, if Tom (laughs) Devine were on the show, um, we know what Tom would say. Tom Devine from Gap. What he would say is that they would Jimmy some reason up, not necessarily the disclosure to have you investigated, but some other reason they would Jimmy it up, send you for an investigation and try to use this jimmied up reason and investigative findings as a means to take away your security clearance or affect your security clearance, particularly in agencies like DOD, um, where Title V workers in DOJ and DHS, um, you know, many of whom need a security clearance. It's a job requirement. Well, that's exactly right. And so, and Tom would get it exactly right, I know. And so what would happen is the security clearance would be pulled. And then as a result of not having the security clearance, the person would have to be let go. And of course, everyone would really regret that the person had to be let go, but you don't have the security clearance anymore, so you can no longer do the job. And so uh, to address that, uh, and pres- so the reason why we had to address that is is what many people saw was the gap in the law, the Whistleblower Protection Act, which is at Title V um, of the U.S. Code 2302B9, um, when it lists the kinds of personnel actions that you're protected from, what it doesn't list is um, eligibility for classified information, um, to, 
eligibility for access to classified information or being placed under investigation, something we're going to talk about towards the end of the show. But this PPD-19, right, was intended to fill part of that gap. Absolutely. There are separate rules that deal with access to classified information and separate authorizing authorities. And so what happened is, as opposed to addressing in the statute, Presidential Policy Directive 19, which used to be classified and no longer is, so we can talk about it, um, uh, put in place a procedure and look to the IGs, as Cynthia mentioned, to be the investigative entity with regard to issues related to access to classified information. So there are a couple of parts. There's a part that relates to the intelligence community yep. and deals with access issues related to reprisal for people coming forward with information in the intelligence community and basically provides that those procedures should mirror as closely as possible those that are available under Title V and with OSC. And then separately- Because they're, they're cut out for our listeners, um, employees in the intelligence community, which includes components of- um, of FBI, but you know it's it's NSA, it's DIA, um, it's CIA. Um, they don't have any of the Title V whistleblower protections. PP, you know, they for anything. So um, PPD nineteen gave them this uh, protection in an internal process. If they make a disclosure lawfully, and they are then retaliated against by any personnel action, reassignment, demotion, detail, bad rating, they now have a process and a forum. That's right. The only thing I would add, just to, just so, so folks are clear, is with regard to the FBI, they are generally part of the intelligence community. You're right. But for purposes of PPD-19, they're expressly excluded. There's a separate provision that actually gives us, the Department of Justice jurisdiction, correct, under FBI employees. They have their own section 2303 and their own regulation. There recently was a bill passed, uh, the FBI Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act, uh, that Senator Grassley uh, moved forward, that expanded FBI whistleblower protections to include disclosures to really anybody within the chain of command. They used to have a much more restrictive list for the FBI than was otherwise available, uh, for instance, for contractors, as we'll talk about, and the like. So just for our FBI listeners, that they're out there, they would they would come right. either to the OIG right. or to OPR within DOJ to investigate those. But under the PPD-19, getting back to that, with regard to access to classified information, that's throughout uh, the executive branch. So that Retaliation be- to limit, to find a way to cut off their access to their eligibility for security clearance, that's government-wide. It's not just the IC community, correct, right, Correct. Rob? Any okay. actions that would affect access to classified information and reprisal for having made a protected disclosure, those would go to the OIG. The OIG would conduct the investigation and then would report back to the agency, which has the ultimate authority over the security clearance. And then there's a procedure that if, if you go through that process and the individual presumably is not satisfied with the result, then there's a panel that can be set up and several IGs are listed, ours are among them, uh, who uh, could be chosen to serve on that panel uh, to review and uh, and ultimately decide those. Yeah, and great overview. What I'd like to do is we have to take our final um, commercial break of the show. What I'd like to do is put a little bit more meat on the bones um, with both you, uh, Rob, and Cynthia about um, PPD-19 because it's it really um, you know there it's a it's a good it's a good attempt at closing some of the gaps in or the holes in um, protections for whistleblowers. So and I think it's um, it was long overdue and important. So I do want to put a little bit more meat on the bones. But we're going to take our final commercial break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred a.m. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. Um, we have in the studio today um, a special guests. They're very special, talking to us about the enhancements to whistleblower pr- protection rights in the last five years or so that I th- that I believed were very important. I wanted to get the word out. And um, in the last part, the last segment of our show, we're going to focus a little bit more on a topic that we were talking about right before the last break, which is the Presidential Policy Directive 19, which came out in October 2012. 
And then um, just to preview, we're going to talk about how some of the um, enhancements have affected federal contractors. And finally, we're going to talk with Darshan at the end of the show about um, what we we as lawyers call the sunset provisions in the WPEA and what that will mean to the whistleblower community. Um, but Cynthia, let's let's. I want to circle back with you on PPD nineteen. We got the big overview, right? You see it playing out. It's playing out in your agents in your department. Yeah, we have now received a lot of PPD nineteen uh, allegations of reprisal uh, concerning people's security clearance for making protected dis- uh, disclosures. And uh, it's, it's very important, particularly with um, Homeland and uh, DOJ. We have a lot of special agents who can't work if they don't maintain a clearance uh, in Department of Homeland Security with Secret Service. And pretty much everybody it could be like a GS-8 administrative assistant. They need their clearance in order to, to maintain their job. So um, and you have the Office of Intelligence. You have, you have, you have the a, Office of yeah, Intelligence, correct. Other non-law enforcement offices where um, the, the work all requires uh, security clearance. And there's previously, uh, so that's a lot of what we're seeing because they don't, they aren't able to go to MSPB, for example. They can't, they're prevented by Supreme Court precedent from from having their security clearance reviewed in an, a court setting. Uh, so really the IG is taking that seriously. We know that uh, we have to be vigilant in that area because, you know, it's a dual interest, you know, security clearance because it involves national security is sensitive. So when you talk to people who look at whether or not to revoke security clearance, they always have to bear national security in mind. But that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be, even if there's not legally some kind of due process that an employee has, that it should be treated in a fair, you know, looking at the whole person, looking at mitigating circumstances, not just immediately revoking clearance uh, under the, the guise of uh, social, uh, sorry, national security. So, so uh, Cynthia, the way it works is at, at Homeland, and I think it works that way at DOJ. Rob, Rob, Rob will let us know. But um, somebody thinks that um, there's been a move to affect their security clearance, whether it's a suspension or referral over to personal security to investigate them, and they think it's reprisal for whistleblowing. How does it? How does PPD nineteen work inside um, your department? Well, there are lots of stages. There'll be a notice of suspension. No, no. How would they, if they want to claim if reprisal? If they want to claim, claim reprisal. How do they do that? The same thing that they do if they um, want to want to talk to us about reprisal as a contractor or under the WPA. They come to us. They go to the hotline. They can mail, fax, do anything like that. What we've tried to do in an agency where probably in a six-month period we get 10,000 complaints in a hotline, right? We've trained. We've tried to train up our intake folks throughout our uh, throughout our organization to make sure if anything says whistleblower reprisal, whistleblower retaliation, prohibited personnel action based on whistleblowing, that it comes directly to our whistleblower protection unit. So we have the people who only do whistleblower reprisal protection are reviewing that and doing the intake and deciding whether to take an investigation. So under PPD-19, you review it, and then the, under PPD-19, your office has the power to investigate that claim of reprisal. That's correct. And then what happens with that? Let's say there is an investigation and the IG issues a report. Then what's the next step? We would issue to the report to, to the secretary, and then they would decide how to handle that. We haven't had one yet Okay, come up, but then the, the secretary would have the opportunity to review that. And then as Rob was talking about the panel, if it was favorable to the employee and the secretary did not take appropriate action, the person could go to this three-person panel made of other IGs to review their case. Yeah, it's an interesting internal process. It's an interesting attempt at balancing what Cynthia was talking about. Absolutely. And our procedure is very much the same. And and I suspect this is true at DHS as well. The only things I'd add is um, one of the things that I, uh, that was done after PPD-19 is uh, we uh, met with the department and uh, put in place uh, revi- or worked with them to revise the procedures for uh, actions affecting security clearances so that people were informed that if there was going to be an adverse action related to their security clearance, if they believed that was being taken because in reprisal for them having uh, blown the whistle to come to the OIG and then to provide that the the security action was held in abeyance while we had an opportunity to investigate and then report back. Um, And I think that's true across the government. And then 
the agency is required to give serious consideration, I believe is the language, um, or words to that effect, under the PPD-19. Although ultimately- Carefully the, consider. The decision is up to the agency to uh, decide what to do regarding the security mm -hmm. clearance. But hopefully one would think that if there's an IG finding that the action was taken in reprisal for having made a protected disclosure, then that would impact that decision. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how Congress views the results of this sort of five-year experiment um, in an area that everyone was very sort of cautious about trying to create rights protections or processes because of the competing interests that Cynthia talked about. And we're going to we're going to get to the uh, five year sunset on the WPEA and the ombuds provisions. But the PPD-19 is here. So um, that and also the protections for contractors, subcontractors, and yeah. grantees. And we have a few minutes to talk about the protections for contractors, Rob. So while you tripped into it, oh. why don't you? you know, <laughs> no good deed goes right? unpunished, right? Um, and so. and this is, is a nice add-on. Right. So uh, there have been protections for contractors and subcontractors over the years in different ways. Yeah. And one of the things that was done in the NDAA in 2013 and has since been expanded and made permanent is a program that gives the OIGs, again, jurisdiction to investigate allegations of reprisal now against employees of contractors, subcontractors, grantees, subgrantees, or personal service contractors, individuals who may not fit into those other categories, if they believe that they've suffered reprisal for having made disclosures. The reprisal theory, by their employer. Correct. The theory, not, not by the U.S. government reprisal, but reprisal by their company. Cor correct. The theory being that we you turn you, you turned your company sorry. in for some sort of fake billing, right? And right. then you're billing to the U.S. And then the company finds out about it, and they're like, "Hey, Joe, you're fired!" Right? That's right. what it protects. And, and we don't want people to be deterred from coming forward with information. The government's interest, the OIGs in particular, but the government's more broadly, is that people come forward with information if they see something that they think is wrong, so that it can be investigated and appropriate corrective action taken. And that's true for employees. That's true for employees of. The government itself, it's true for employees of contractors, subcontractors, and all the other categories. So Section 4712 puts in place these- 4712 uh, of Title 41. Of Title 41. Um, and Senator McCaskill sponsored the legislation that made that permanent and also expanded some of the protections to ensure that those employees have the same sort of protections. And um, there's various information on different websites. We have an informational page, uh, which is linked on our website for employees of DOJ contractors and the like that they can download and look at about how to pursue those claims. Sure. And um, and Cynthia, you you're your website also, um, your ombudsman website also has um, information, right, for federal contractors? It, it very much mirrors DOJ. We might have actually cut and paste from there. So go to oig.dhs. Against okay. interest. Yes. <laughs> no, it's very much, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. Yeah, but you also have the same, I mean, it's the same law that covers your contractors right. and you have a process also in place to help them. We do. We have a hotline. Go to our website. It's a red button that says hotline. There's also a button that says whistleblower reprisal. You can find out uh, information about that and file that way. So, yeah, just go to our website. And we have um, about a minute, um, Darshan. We've talked about the sunset provisions. What are they? Yeah, so the, the big one is the um, all-circuit review. Uh the WPA expanded appellate review of whistleblower cases beyond the federal circuit, so you could file with any uh, appropriate federal appellate court. And that from had, MSPB, from the MSPB, correct? Yeah, yeah. which is was an incredible um, uh, expansion it was. of people's rights. Right, because historically, of course, it was all concentrated in the federal circuit, and you were getting uh, one body reviewing uh, all of the cases. So, you know, it's consistent with other whistleblower laws: Sarbanes-Oxley, False Claims Act, things like that. Um, and I think the idea was to create potential split circuits and have uh, resolution at the Supreme Court level, uh, so a, a more robust sort of uh, development of the law. And it, it will sunset, uh, I believe, around Thanksgiving of this year. It uh, was originally two years, expanded to five, and will uh, expire. Sunset unless Congress re-ups it. Right. And we, and we know we, many people in the community have been at Congress trying to get them to re-up it. We hope they're not too distracted it's a very important piece of the law. We have about 15 seconds left. Are there any other provisions? There is the Whistleblower Ombudsman Program. And I would just say really quickly that the community has been uh, very much engaged, the IG community, in looking to continue that. There's been support throughout the community, because again, because of the importance of IGs. So whether they're called ombuds or something else, we believe it's really important that IGs continue to remain engaged in ensuring that whistleblowers can come forward with information. They don't suffer reprisal for yeah. doing so. Two really important provisions of the law. We're all looking to make sure 
that they're re-upped at the end of the year. Thanks to all my guests for joining me today.